When I was looking at reading about Alistair's work, the words that came to mind, the personification of Alistair was thought, word and deed. And indeed, Alistair is a thinker. He's a writer, he's a lecturer. He's also an eco-activist. Now, originally from the Isle of Lewis, he now lives in Glasgow. His best-known books include Soil and Soul, uh, People versus Corporate Power, Hell and High Water, uh, which is about climate change, hope and the human condition, Rekindling Community, Connecting People, Environment and Spirituality, and Radical Human Ecology. He's an honorary research fellow of the University of Glasgow and a research fellow at the School of Divinity at Edinburgh University. He's a founding director of the Gargal Trust for the Regeneration of People and Place, based in Govan, Glasgow. He's also a fellow of the Innovative Educational Centre for Human Ecology in Glasgow. He has been active in many areas, including Scottish land reform on the Isle of Egg and the Harris Super Quarry Battle. September 2015 brings on the latest publication, Spiritual Activism, and this is the theme and starting point that Alistair happily has agreed to share with us this weekend. So, Alistair, <coughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me, folks, and let's just take a short time of silence just to gather here. I'm reminded of a Yorkshire friend who, whose people were from the hills there, and he used to say, it used to get so cold that we'd all gather around the candle, and when it got really cold, sometimes we'd light it. <laughs> <laughs> On the field of truth, on the battlefield of life, what came to pass, Sanjaya? That is the opening line as translated in Wan Muscaro's wonderful Penguin Classics edition of the Hindu Bhagavad Gita. In fact, it's just the first half of the opening line. And those words sum up for me when they are unpacked what it is that we're here to discuss in considering the fierce love, as Ramdas called it, of spiritual activism. I'll come back round to that in a moment, but first, the season of the year, the ancestors, the forebears. Yesterday on my way to the station, I went via the Glasgow necropolis, 
City of the Dead because BBC Radio Scotland had phoned me up at very short notice and said we're stuck for somebody who can speak about what remembrance means <laughs> and they were doing the piece for Remembrance Sunday next week so at the last resort they came to the pacifist <laughs> <laughs> And of course, I had a suitcase of books. <laughs> My wife always says when I go home, and how many have you brought back this time? <laughs> I had a suitcase of books. <laughs> and it turns out that, you know, I thought that they'd be there with their cars and so on. They'd all come by taxi. So there was nowhere I could leave the suitcase. And the path going over the bridge to the necropolis from Glasgow Cathedral is cobbled. And so it is going to wreck the wheels of the suitcase. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm just going to have to do a winger on it and just leave it here. But I don't want them thinking it's a bomb. <laughs> so... I went and quickly just pulled out from my notebook a piece of paper and just scribbled a note, parked the suitcase against a wall, and we went up into the necropolis and did our recording about the meaning of stone, the meaning of place, the impermanence of life. You can imagine it all. And then when we finished the recording... Um, Mo, the technician, said, um, you know, Alistair, people have been coming up and photographing your bag <laughs> with that note on it. <coughs> and, <coughs> and I thought, you know, I thought, what was it I wrote? I just wrote something that was fitting to the occasion. So I went back down and I recovered the bag and there was my note. And it said, visiting... The dead. <laughs> you said you were sending stuff out on social media. If you go on my Twitter site, you will see it there. But I'm afraid I used to be totally shunned this kind of thing, but was having had to get an iPhone to control these hearing aids, because, as I said last night, I'm profoundly deaf now. Um, so it's, uh, was having to do that. It's kind of sucked me into, <laughs> in, in, into that world. Visiting the dead. Back soon. <laughs> on the field of truth, on the battlefield of life, what came to pass, Sanjaya? Now, we are activists in as much as we are active, in as much as we are engaged in the world, and specifically engaged in processes of change. Whether it is changes that we think we initiate, or changes that we come to understand ourselves as participating in, as revealed, for example, in the Taoist philosophies of ancient texts like the I Ching, the Book of Changes, 
the sense that everything is in constant change and we are the participants in that. Perhaps the only cosmic constancy is consciousness, is that divine awareness in which we also participate. That awareness, that mindfulness. I opened my curtains this morning, I had a little bit of thinking to do, but I looked out and I saw people walking mindfully around the garden. And I don't know if you noticed, folks, but I, I kind of waved to you and I thought, with you in spirit, <laughs> I carried on with my stuff. But that sense of awareness, because without that awareness, without that consciousness, there is nothing. And so whether we are the ones who think we act, or whether we are the agents and participants of a deeper action, is an interesting question to seek to become aware of. Because if we take seriously the community of the dead, who at this time of year, at Halloween in particular, we visit, we come to an awareness that the process of life is a long river flowing. And we are just the cutting edge of the breaking wave that's on that river at this unfolding moment in time. And behind us, the dead, and ahead of us, the as yet unborn. And so as soon as you start thinking, what does it mean to be active or an activist in this life? You get drawn into the question, if you are aware, if you are awake, if you can bother to be awake, you get drawn into the question of what is your cosmic framing of reality. And in that opening line of the Gita, on the field of truth, the field of Dharma, Dharma is a word, word that is being translated there, sometimes very narrowly translated as being the law. I would say it's more about the, the Dharma is the unfolding way of reality. The suchness, the naturalness of that which is coming into being is how I would, my sense of what the Dharma would be, that, translated by one Mascaro as truth, or the field of truth, is the precise Hindi or Sanskrit word being translated. On the field of truth, on the battlefield of life, what came to pass? Now what you're seeing there is a threefold hierarchical, I use the word not in its popular sense, its popular misuse, I use it in its etymological sense of hieros arcos, meaning sacred order. What we see there is a nested hierarchy of being. And if I can start it in reverse, what came to pass, Sanjaya? What came to pass are the things of the present moment, the everyday affairs of women and men as we go about our lives. On the field of truth, on the battlefield of life, what came to pass. The battlefield of life is when we stand back a little bit 
and take a bigger look. So one of the questions that Anna Magnusson, um, Mastermind's daughter, was asking me when Mo was doing the recording yesterday was, why do we remember the dead? Why do we have Halloween or its military equivalent, Remembrance Sunday? Why do we do that? It's interesting, isn't it, that Remembrance Sunday is very close to Halloween when you think of it. It only occurred to me yesterday. Why do we remember? And I was suggesting that when you have what in Scotland we like to call a good funeral, a good funeral is good in two ways. One is the, um, the nosh-up and the dram that comes afterwards. Always a wee dram. Of course, the wee of the dram, the bigger it actually is. <laughs> and I think the other reason is that at a funeral, when we're faced with death, it's one of those moments when windows open in consciousness and we see more deeply into the fullness of life, of life around us, of those we love, of the one who has just passed away, and also our own life. That remembering the dead, whether war dead or any passing, raises us to awareness of the battlefield of life, of the struggle that most of us have, probably all of us have, in fielding what our lives are about and life's meaning. So on the field of truth, in the battlefield of life, what came to pass, what comes to pass in our day-to-day events is held within this bigger context of our lives, that the activist needs to become more aware of. What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? My wife and I are working just now with politicians and civil servants in West Papua, or specifically the province of Papua, in Indonesia and West Papua, which I don't need to talk about the human rights situation that's been there. And when we visited there a couple of years ago, we went to see the village conscientization work that was being done on Numfa Island, where we met Mama Wanma, who I would call a shaman, the anthropologists would call her a cult leader. And Mama Wanma showed us the sacred tree from which one of the fruits growing on it had dropped into the sea and floated out to the lagoon where the women were doing their fishing, including a woman called Mary from the village. And the seed from the sacred tree went up into Mary and inseminated her. And that is how the Papuan Christ was born, because Christ is a Papuan. And I looked at Mama Wanma and said, well, of course that is true. She was surprised to hear that from a white man. Of course it's true. It is telling the deep truth of that story in their cultural idiom. But before showing us the tree... We'd been waiting for her, and we're all lounging around on the beach, sleeping and what have you. And she comes to us, and she says, Sit up. Do not be lazy. You have got work to do in your lives. Sit up and pay attention. So we engage 
in what comes to pass from day to day. But we must sit up and pay attention. Times like Halloween, Remembrance Day, funerals, openings into that deeper life that lies behind death draw us to a greater awareness of that battlefield of life. And that's where most people probably leave it. That's where most activism leaves it. At that sense of the battlefields of our lives, the political struggles, the economic competitiveness, the dynastic issues within families and all the rest of it. But the Gita nests it into a still bigger picture than that, on the field of Dharma, on the battlefield of life, what came to pass and there. In other words, we need to take these everyday happenstances, set into the contexts of our whole lives, and understand those as part of the unfolding of the Dharma. As part of, Christ would often speak of the way. Seek ye an opening of the way, is an old Quaker expression. Or if it isn't, I've made it so now. <laughs> Seek ye an opening of the way. And so what we start to see is that the everyday little moments of activism, and sometimes, very often in fact, as you become aware of walking as an activist, there's what I call, for when my wife is French, I say to her, c'est le moment. It's a moment. There will just be that fleeting instance when you can intercede, to use a spiritual word, in a situation in a way that is meaningful. And you'll know the times when you miss it. You'll know the times when you've climbed the stair in the station and you've got to the top and it's just a little bit too late to realise that you could actually have helped that old person with their bag or something like that. And you kind of inwardly kick yourself because you missed the moment. And so activism does not start in terms of the big things like the super quarry campaign or the land reform on egg. That's not actually where it starts. I get young people come up to me and say, I want to be like you. How can I do those things? And I'll say, well, maybe go and wash those dishes. <laughs> And they say, no, 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 you don't understand me. And I say, yes, I do understand you. <laughs> you with me? You with me? Because if your activism is only at those lower levels of awareness of reality, you're not going to trip out into the cosmic consciousness. <laughs> As Raymond Buke the great Canadian psychiatrist who wrote a book of that name in 1901, called it. You're not going to trip out into that awareness of the field of truth. The truth, Jesus said, shall set you free. 
the truth that will set you free, the truth that will set you free in so many ways, it will set you free to act as an activist. Paradoxically, it will also set you free from being trapped in your actions as an activist. As Raimondo Panica, a great Hindu, Roman Catholic, Indian, Spanish by parentage, mystic who died recently, said, only forgiveness breaks the law of karma. And of course, the Bhagavad Gita's whole thing is a teaching of karma yoga, the yoga of work, the yoga of activism, yoga as union with the divine. That's the meaning of yoga, to yoke. It's cognate with our word, to yoke. means union with the cosmic whole shiban on the field of truth, in the battlefield of life. What came to pass Sanjaya? So who is this Sanjaya? Sanjaya was the eagle-eyed charioteer of the blind king Dhritarashtra. And the point that the Gita is making there is that political power is always blind. Political power operates at the levels of what comes to pass and on the battlefield of life. But it is usually blind to the field of truth. And that's why Dhritarashtra was the blind king. He was blind because he was a king. And if we seek kingly power, If with Jesus we stand on the mountain with the devil and the devil says, bow down before me and all these kingdoms I will give unto you. Then we go blind. We'll have all those kingdoms, but we will be blind as to what we are doing in order to have them. So Sanjaya is there in the Gita. Sanjaya, the eagle-eyed charioteer, he's the one who's got the vision of the Dharma. And political power, when rightly exercised as part of our social organisation, as the expression of our social organisation, will not be right. It will be blind unless there are these charioteers running alongside with eagle vision. And I think that's what an activist is, a spiritual activist is. A spiritual activist. You know, our job is not to try and be Jeremy Corbyn or David Cameron or Nicola Sturgeon. Our job is to run alongside and fire these arrows of vision, these wake-up arrows of vision. Trouble is, that's what I see an activist as being. And my co-author Matt Carmichael, who is a young activist from Leeds, and I we start off discussing what an activist is. 
and why activists are central to the holding of community, to the recreation and rebuilding of community. But the trouble is, we're doing that in a world where many of the forces around us are configured to pull us into the present moment, not in a sense of the sacrament of the present moment, but in the sense of the stimulation and instant gratification of desires according to an addictive model. As one of your great English theologians said about consumerism, I can't get no satisfaction because <laughs> I try and I try and I try. <laughs> and so you say, as Richard Rohr, the American Franciscan teacher, would say, well, that's because when you're trying to get satisfaction in that way, you're pursuing what he calls a false liminal. So the liminal is... The, li the lemon, the threshold, the doorway under which you pass into another world. And the name of the game in raising consciousness towards cosmic consciousness is that we pass through various thresholds, the shift from what comes to pass in daily life to the battlefield of life to Dharma consciousness, that's a series of thresholds that you go through as your awareness grows. And what the devil's doing out on his mountain with Jesus is he's holding out, and you'll notice I come from the outer Hebrides, so I'm treating the devil as a very literal <laughs> reality. He's holding out all these false thresholds. Turn these stones into bread. The idea that we can short-circuit nature, if you like, the temptation of industrial agriculture carried out in a way that pays no heed to deep ecological cycles. a liminal falsehood. All these kingdoms can be yours. The idea that we can short-circuit just social process and that we can live as landlords. We can put ourselves in a position where others will have to use our lives to serve us in a way that is not balanced by our serving back to them. The temptation of political power, kingly power, propertied power. And then the biggest false liminal of all, where the devil says, go on, show that you can jump off from this high place, and God will send her angels to catch you. The idea that it's okay to put God to the test. The idea that spiritual power, the deepest power, 
is something to show off, to impress people with, to build power by impressing others rather than empowerment from within. These are all different thresholds of the false liminal that's being shown to us. And the difficulty in communicating this, not just in the world of a whole out there, but also in activist movements, is that for a great many people today, that realm of the Dharma, of the opening of the way, that realm of walking humbly with your God, with realizing your Buddha nature, dancing with the parthenogenetic goddess, the goddess as in that word from biology, parthenogenesis, when you cut off one bit, another bit just grows because you can't kill the spirit. She's like a mountain. Problem is that that world doesn't exist for many people because their level of consciousness has not opened out there. And so, as soon as you talk about the spiritual, you're in problems with two separate departments. One is the Department of Secular Affairs, the Richard Dawkins crew, who say, the next thing is, you'll be talking about the fairies, to which I reply, well, actually... <laughs> And the other is the Department of Mainstream Religious Affairs, where religion and its control structures is threatened by the naked vine of spirituality. Now, I'm not saying that as a whack against religion, because I happen to think religion is very important. What is religion? It's all very well for me to have my spirituality and you to have your spirituality and her to have hers and so on. But the moment we want to get together as a social group and express it somehow, we have to come to an agreement amongst ourselves as to what we are expressing. Otherwise it's meaningless. And then you have a religious <coughs> Re meaning back and ligios as in ligaments to tie down. Then you have a tying down of that spirituality to something we can agree to gather around. There are, there are people from my part of the world who no way would they sit in front of turnip lanterns and a candle. They would consider that that is proof that Alistair McIntosh is in league with the devil. Please be careful what you tweet. <laughs> okay? Because there wouldn't be agreement around that. And so a religion is when you find agreement. And I think that at its best, a religion is like a trellis in a garden. The purpose of a trellis is to lead the vine to the light so that it can produce the sweetest grapes that will make the best wine. That's what a religion should do. It should be a framework for spiritual growth. Otherwise, the vine of life 
has to go wild along the ground, which can be very creative. It's what many of us are doing just now when our churches have been soured and poisoned so we don't find faith groups we can sit comfortably with. We're having to grow wild along the ground. But it's not always the best way, and already we're hitting big problems in terms of not having a common basis of discourse about spiritual matters. I mean, you've noticed this morning I'm drawing heavily on both Hindu and Christian thought. And from what I understand of this group, many of you will have the handles to get what I'm talking about. I can talk about Dharma and you get what I'm talking about. I can talk about what Jesus was doing with the devil on the mountain and most of you probably get what I'm talking about. The problem is you go out there into the world around us and a lot of folk, a lot of activists of Matt's generation, for example, they'll never have read any of the Gospels and they'll think it's just... Their understanding of it will mainly come from the Dawkins type set. They won't know those stories that give them handles. They're probably more likely to have encountered something Buddhist than they are Christian. And even that form of Buddhism that you get in the West, as distinct from what you find when you go to Buddhist countries in the East, can be a very head-centered individualistic form of spiritual expression without a social witness to it. Hence why people like my friend Sulak Sivaraska in Thailand, or Siam as he prefers to call it, with others started the Network for Engaged Buddhists because they recognized that Buddhism needed to take activism seriously. In a traditional society, you didn't need to do that because in a traditional society, life revolves around activism, the activism of staying alive with each other. But in the modern world, you need to take that seriously. So we're living in a world where a lot of people have simply not been exposed to the structures of religious thought that can give handles by which to interpret spiritual experience. There was a piece in the New York Times this week by a guy called Duthat, I think his name was, um, Yes, Ross Duthat, D-O-U-T-H-A-T. And it's fascinating because he's saying that the research suggests that people are still having spiritual experiences in today's world, but that they no longer have the frameworks with which to discuss and interpret them. And so these spiritual experiences, whether it's mystical-type experiences, peak experiences, um, he's talking about, you know, there's been quite a few studies done of the mass wave of sense of communication with the dead experienced by Japanese after the tsunami hit them. That kind of spiritual experience, near-death experiences, I can, you'll be familiar with the kind of list. People are having these things, but they don't have a social framework. And he's saying it's a bit as if we've got an equivalent of the church-state divide. That the two things, the experience that people are having, and the sharing it in the context of state, have become separated. So I find all the time, when I go and talk about these things, people will come up afterwards and tell me about this, that and the other amazing experience that they might have had. 
but it's not something they would feel very comfortable about sharing with their peers. Because spirituality, and particularly religion, has been delegitimatized. And from the point of view of religion, in large measure, it's brought that on itself because of the way in which the trellis has been taken control of, the way in which the trellis has been used to judge who is acceptable as a human being, who is not acceptable as a human being, and tried to conform behavior in accordance with the interest of the feudal powers that be. By feudal, I mean powers that be where secular power is believed to be divinely mandated. Hence, if you look at the coat of arms of Great Britain, the motto, the motto is Je et mon droit, God and my right. Mm. And there's much debate amongst heraldry buffs as to what exactly that means. But it's generally taken that the word right droit means right hand, meaning the hand that holds a sword, your right to power, your sense of entitlement to that power, endorsed by believing that it comes from a divine right to hold power. And the problem is that when that sword is used to cut, not in the symbolic sense, but in a literal sense, when that sword becomes a button on the nuclear trigger, then it's je that gets discredited. And in many ways, the story of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, documents that discrediting. In the book of Second Samuel, Samuel says to God, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, old chap, but um, the people want a king. And God says, tell them they've got a king, it's me. And Samuel says, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> we're not talking about the level of Dharma here. We're, we're talking about what's happening on the battlefield of life. They want a king like every other tribe. And it's a remarkable passage because God says, oh, well, if that's what they want, let them have it. But tell them that they will find it will turn their young men into charioteers and their women into perfumers and bakers. And then, of course, what happened is we end up blaming God for war and for the gender division of our society. And yet there's God warning, if you're going to choose that type of authority, this will be the consequence. This is what a king will do to you. But of course, people don't study these things, so they don't know. So the problem we have when we're talking about doing not just activism, but spiritual activism, is how to make it credible to the people around us. And this is where if you like, the downside of the New Age movement has been its lack of political awareness. 
its lack of social engagement, its lack of awareness of the dynamics by which cultic behaviour comes about and charisma is abused. We've got a whole chapter in spiritual activism on cults and charisma and how spiritual gifts are misused. That's a downside, the shadow side of what is broadly called the New Age movement that came about from about the 1950s onwards, had its real blossoming in the 1960s and early 70s. The upside of it is that it was necessarily saying we need a liberation theology. We need a theology that liberates theology itself. We need an opening from which we can learn from these other traditions in the world and reconstellate what spirituality might mean in our times. And that's where people like Matthew Fox are coming in. Because touched by those things, Thomas Merton, you know, the last book he wrote was his um, Asian Journals. Is that what it's called, the Asian Journals? Something like that. Um, a remarkable book where he talks about visiting, he goes to Thailand and Sri Lanka, I think it is, he visits Buddhist temples, and he wakens up to the, the whole interfaith trip just before he died in that electrocution incident in a hotel in Vietnam, I think it was. And what Merton was experiencing there, having started off with a Trappist monk, <coughs> was the fertilisation that contact with other faiths can give to us. Therefore, part of our work today, and I would suggest a big part of what Green Spirit might be on about, is helping to give people the handles to organise their thinking so that the blockages that are thrown in their way, the manner in which they are traduced into not thinking about activism, can start to be cleared. <coughs> then you come to what the activism actually is. What does spiritual activism actually look like on the ground? Again, Ian and Hilary asked me to try and bear in mind the time of year and the seasonal issue, so I'll stay with the ancestors. And just to give you one of quite a number of examples I could draw on from my own experience, a story that I tell in Soil and Soul, that in the 1990s, a small group of us were battling to challenge landed power. And the battlefield of life in which we engaged with that process was to challenge the ownership by one man of the 7,000-acre island of Egg with its tiny population of 60 people, population that had been kept very small because the private owner used it as his holiday playground. And so this was a kind of totemic battleground in which to raise a large question of land ownership and feudal structures that we still have through the social class system in Britain, something that came in very strongly with the Norman conquest. Some are born to rule and the rest are born to be ruled, that kind of dynamic. And 
getting this land rights movement that eventually in 1997 resulted in the buyout, the community buyout of the island of Egg, with some 10,000 donations from around the world. I should say that 70% of those donations came from England, was people writing to us saying things like, what you're doing in Scotland gives us hope. And I like to think what we're still doing in Scotland. <laughs> okay, and so we succeeded in that, and then that led to the land reform legislation, and we've now got half a million of Scotland's 19 million acres in community land ownership. So 5% of Scotland is now community owned. That's where things have gotten to. On that. But right in those early days, there is always a question of dropping in the seed crystal to a saturated solution. Do you remember in school chemistry, you'd, uh, there was a chemical called sodium thiosulfate, and you'd, you'd melt it in a, in a flask. It had to be a very, very clean, chemically clean flask. You'd, you'd melt it down on the Bunsen burner, and then it would go cold. And it would sit there and it would be all ready to solidify as crystals, but it didn't know... I mean, I, I'm anthropomorphising this story, but it, it didn't know how to crystallise. And so the chemistry teacher would drop a single tiny crystal of sodium thiosulfate into the solution, and that would tell the rest of it what to do. From that pattern and example of the Quaker George Fox called, I'm sure, the same chemistry experiment... <laughs> from that pattern and example, the whole thing would suddenly solidify into a massive crystal. And that's what we've got to do, you see. And so in the case of egg, the question in the early stages of that campaign is what seed crystals can we drop in at various places to make people click? And on this particular occasion... Myself, Tom Forsyth, and Bob Harris, and who started the trust, we'd been staying with Mary Kirk, who's a Catholic, a very traditional, very <coughs> devout Catholic indigenous woman on egg. We'd been staying with her, and we set off in her Land Rover to go over to the other side of egg, where the people had had to ask the landowner's permission to use their hole to have the meeting in. And the landowner thought it was such a joke, the idea that we might raise the money to buy an island valued at three million. Uh, we eventually got it for 1.6 million. That's because we engaged in the process called market spoiling. But the idea, i.e., you know, people would helicopter in to look round the island, nice haul of the island to buy. It's been, it's been advertised by a Canadian... <coughs> Islands broker called called, called um, Farhad Vladi, and his his business's name was Vladi Island Enterprises. <laughs> <laughs> it's been advertised by all. You'll see it on my web. We've got all the pictures there and so on. And uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I see you know, the the island taxis taking them along from where the helicopter land to show them round the beautiful island that they're about to cough up three million for. And lo and behold. The postman 
has parked his van in the middle of the single track road. <laughs> John Chester just happened to have a parcel to deliver to that little croft away down there. And while, while John's away delivering his parcel, he just happens to have to go down there just now. Um, and he knows that people on the island are always infinitely patient. A little old lady comes down and she raps on the window of the millionaires. And she says, Oh, hello, my dears. <laughs> oh, you've come to see our island. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's yeah. such a beautiful island, my dears. You're very welcome to come here for your holidays. <laughs> but please don't think you can own us. <laughs> yes. So... In order to seed that kind of thing, we were all in the back of Maori's Land Rover, which had no seats because it was primarily intended to transport sheep around in. <laughs> and we're bouncing about on this aluminium floor. And as we're coming up over the top of the island, a river started to flow into my head. A silver river started flowing through my head as I was bouncing about at the back of this landover, going down to give the keynote speech to launch the Isle of Egg Trust on the island. And this was a mighty river that was flowing in my head and what was the silver river made up of? But it was a river of voices. And I knew that these were the voices of the ancestors and be still and know that I am God. Rest back. Don't worry about what you will say when they have you up in court, because the words will be given unto you. And the islanders have been very divided at that point whether or not to support the trust. And the tea room was packed with every islander and their dog and their babies and everything squeezed in. And I gave the speech straight from the heart, extemporary, from the ancestors. I didn't say that to people. That's why he. And they subsequently had a secret ballot and voted overwhelmingly to back what we were doing. Mm. And as confidence built, we had elections and they elected their own board, notwithstanding the landowner issuing eviction letters to the ringleaders, which resulted in his lawyer resigning from continuing to be factor 
office of state and which upped the ante of the whole campaign because the more he kicked against the community the more it generated media interest and you see that'll be invisible to the vast majority of people people who've read what I've written will say oh well yeah Alistair had this wacky experience in the back of a Land Rover <laughs> well that's what happens when you spend too long with people like Murray who holds together the little Catholic church on egg that's your spiritual act mm. it's quite a radical example it's fitting to tonight's agenda I want to move towards a close now. I could have given you many more applied examples, but I know quite a lot of you have read some of my books, so I'll just be telling you what you've already read, and we've got time for discussion. I want to close by just reading the very last part of this book in which you know, we talk about the higher consciousness, the nature of it, what the basis is for, experimental basis is for believing in spirituality. We talk about the structure of the psyche, what Freud said, Jung said, people like Abraham Maslow and Masni Fasagioli, Wilhelm Reich, Alice Miller, who talked about the importance of early childhood experience and so on. Uh, we talk about movements and their movers in terms of shamanism and prophetic traditions, cults and charisma, a whole chapter on non-violence and the centrality of non-violence to spiritual activism, the psychodynamics of campaigning in terms of, you know, the need to distinguish between when we're projecting our own unresolved stuff out onto the world. And I love a cartoon I once saw of all the activists going along with their placards, ban the bomb, down with the corporations, up the government, stuff this, etc. And the very last, save the whales and all the rest of it. And the very last guy is walking along and his placard says, I hate my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, into the deeper magic. And I'd just like to... <laughs> close was reading you this final section that I call the quickening we've been talking about the ways of magic and reached what C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia called the deeper magic from before the dawn of time here says Lewis death itself would start working backwards such as salvation the salving or healing of our deepest wounds. Those wounds are the consequence of that cringe-inducing little word, sin, as defined in the liberation theology of Gustavo Gutierrez as being the deepest root of all servitude. For sin is the breaking of friendship with God and with other human beings. In mystical cosmology, this deeper magic is apocatastasis, Greek word from the New Testament, meaning the revelation of all that is, was, and will be 
in all its abundance. As in the title of Donovan's 1968 compilation album, like it is, was and evermore shall be. Or as in the words of the original old hymn, which wert and art and evermore shalt be. Here is reality, including human beingness, outside of the constraints of space and time. This is the sacred time of eternity, as distinct from the interminable mathematical time of infinity. Eastern orthodoxy portrays it as becoming one as all things, a return from many to one. Here, the past is entirely preserved and the present open, because everything points to and is totally present in the eye of the eternal, and quoting an Eastern Orthodox theologian there. That is how death starts working backwards, the mystical understanding of resurrection. These ideas are found not just in the early Christian mystics, but in the Vedic sages of India and the poetry of the early Celtic bards. The latter describe the green world of the ever-young, Tirnanog, the timeless realm of fairy. Such deeper magic sustains the activist's hope and feeds the roots of life when all else, all of lesser depth, has run dry. Yes, we remain immersed in the suffering of the world, our own included, but like a storm raging in the bottom of the valley, the higher we climb the mountain, the more we see it in proportion. Then our lives quicken. Quick is one of those strange old Saxon words rarely used today. The quick are the living who contrast with the dead. A mother quickens with child when she feels first movement in her womb. The quick is a tender, sensitive part of the body akin to the marrow. Thus, we might get chilled to the quick. When Thomas Hardy writes that Tethys breath quickened, he implies more than just a huffing and puffing. Thus, too, the original wording of an Iona community prayer, quicken us in mind and spirit. One of the most mystical lyrics to have emerged from English rock music is Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Robert Plant had reputedly been reading works of Celtic magic and hinted that the lyrics were channeled from beyond. In the song, the materialistic world where all that glitters is gold and the path to heaven can be bought is contrasted with the spiritual world a quickening of nature when I look to the west and my spirit is crying for leaving. Here expressed in everyday culture is apocatastasis, that cosmic restoration where the piper will lead us to reason and a new day will dawn for those who stand long and the forests will echo with laughter. Here, 
in the bustle of the hedgerow is the May Queen, the dear lady. Her stairway to heaven is what the Franciscan priest Richard Rohr calls the true liminal, the threshold between the worlds. This is the line the shaman must cross to bring back healing for the people. This is a path that, as the lyrics have it, lies on the whispering wind. Here, facing our shadows taller than our soul, we meet the lady, the feminine divine, who shines white light and wants to show how everything still turns to gold where, when all are one and one is all. Ooh, it makes me wonder. <laughs> On the field of truth. On the battlefield of life. What came to pass? Sanjaya. In Scottish folklore, the Highland soldier dying on the battlefield quickens in his last breath. His blinded eyes open to a beatific vision. The weary guns at last fall quiet and he whispers to his comrades, The pipes! The pipes! then the piper will lead us to reason. That's what came to pass, Sanjaya. Ooh, it really makes me wonder. <laughs>